Well, good morning, ARC. I'm Pastor Dennis, and I want to welcome both visitor and member to ARC's online services once again. And I have the privilege and the opportunity to open up and share God's word with you this morning. So if you're new Christian, new to the Bible, this is a great opportunity to drop in. We're going through the gospel of Mark as we look to Jesus and why we need to follow him. But if you're a veteran, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time as well, this is a great time for you to look to Jesus, especially in light of unrest that's going on in the world, an upcoming political uh, campaign that's getting ready to happen. This is a great opportunity to fix our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we dive into Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, let us look to the Lord. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that you are in control of all things that you are still on the throne. And when things look chaotic and things look like they are in unrest, God, you are still in control. So we pray now that we would be reminded of that afresh, Lord. We pray that you would grant someone the forgiveness of their sins. And Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer and it's in you that we trust. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So family, what is our greatest need? If I were to ask you that, you may have a list of food, clothes, shelter, a good job, and things like that. And those would be good things, but what is the greatest need that we have? Would you rank forgiveness? And on your list, where would that be? Well, that's one of the questions that we're going to consider today. So as we continue to walk through Mark, Jesus continues to correct our thinking as well as to confirm his identity. Here in the passage of Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, we see Jesus' boldest statement so far. And that says a lot because he said and done some bold things in chapter 1. And yet this crowd still gathers around to hear this man. But this time they're confronted with this question. A question that we must all answer. What is our greatest need? And here it is. Jesus, he said that he has the authority. And we already see that he has the audacity. But does his authority extend to the point of forgiving sins? And if so, what does that mean? What are the implications of that answer? There's a couple of sayings that state, if you want to know the source of scandal, follow the money. If you want to solve the mystery, follow the clues. Well, if you want to know Jesus and follow his example, and follow his priorities. And here we see that Jesus prioritizes the hearing of his words over the expectations of the crowd. We see in verse three to five, he prioritizes spiritual healing over physical needs. In verse six to seven, he prioritizes answering good questions over addressing false statements and accusations. In verse eight to 11, he prioritizes revealing his identity who he is rather than what people expect him to be. And lastly, in verse 12, he prioritizes God's glory over it all. So we're in Mark, the second book of the New Testament, beginning in chapter two. So let's take a look at the priority of hearing his words in verse one to two. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
So we see the crowds gather and we see Jesus preaches. The time he prepared in private in the desolate places that we talked about last week prepared him for what was coming publicly. So when he emerges, we see the setting takes place in a place called Capernaum. This is headquarters for Jesus' team. This is his favorite hangout spot there, Peter's house. He was there so much that the scripture says they called it home. So once he returns back, social media blows up, the news goes viral, and this is a must-see event that Jesus has come into town. And I want to point your attention there to verse 2 that says, And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. The crowd was thick. Some was there for the right reasons, and others were there for the wrong reason. Chapter 1, verse 45 says, The crowd was so overwhelming that he could not even enter the city. His popularity was off the chain. He was like a local celebrity at this point. Everyone wanted to see Jesus. Crowds were very interesting when you take a look at them as you continue to go out through this, through this gospel. And what you'll notice as we continue in Mark is that you'll find at least three types of people or personalities that are in these crowds. Those who were curious, these are people who wanted something from Jesus, whether it was healing, bread, fish fries, selfies. They're not bad things, but they're just not the main thing. Then you have those who were committed. You have the disciples and those like them who were in the crowd. These were students who were doing on-the-job training to learn about Jesus and the ministry that they would soon be doing. They were a ragtag bunch of men who weren't perfect, but they had a desire to know and a desire to follow Jesus. And true, they had a long way to go uh, from being disciples, those who learn, to being apostles, those who are sent. And many times they missed it, like many of us. But Jesus was patient and working with them. And this is the lesson in discerning between weakness and wickedness. Because lastly, there are those who were cunning and conniving that are in the crowd. These were the skeptical religious types. Jesus went hard on them and called them out for self-righteousness and hypo hypocritical thinking. These were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And Jesus describes them like this. Matthew 23, 13 to 15 says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Matthew 23, 23 to 24, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. These were Jesus's words. So basically he had a room full of spiritually dull and spiritually dead people. And the reality is, in most crowds, you're pretty much find the exact same thing. The spiritually dull, who have some spiritual background or appetite, and then the spiritually dead who, dist who distract and they try to cause confusion. This has application for our PSA teams, our pray, study, and act teams. In the crowd, as you serve, 
there will be skeptics. But remind yourself, they have a greater need than just losing an argument. In the crowds, there will be people who have great physical needs. But remind yourself, what's the greatest need? And in the crowd will be those whose hearts and mind God has already prepared to bring him glory. In all of these scenarios, the question should be, what is the greatest need? But you'll also have skeptics on the other hand that will say, is this gospel drift? Is this the social gospel? Are you a Marxist? Be reminded, family, that following Jesus means not just listening to his words, but actually following Jesus. Jesus had compassion. He took pity. He fed the 4,000. He fed the 5,000. And yes, it pointed to Jesus as the greater Moses feeding the Israelites with manna from heaven, but it also showed what God is like. People were hungry, and he fed them. Our God is merciful. He's loving. And this is not to the neglect of the greater need of forgiveness, but as an inclusion of revealing his whole character. Now, does that mean the church is a soup kitchen? No. But why not partner with a soup kitchen, an urban garden, to see people fed with food as we come alongside to provide food for their souls, especially in light of the context in which we live? A faith that fails to produce good works is no faith at all. But also notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't try to organize to overthrow the Roman government or plot on his enemies. No, he does something far more powerful. He preaches. Preaching is a means to know and respond to our greatest need. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So he prioritizes the word. And if it's a priority for him to preach, then it's a priority for us to listen to his words. And that's why we preach from the Bible, because the Bible is God's word. Hebrew chapter four, verse 12 says that the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between bone, marrow, soul, and spirit, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It affects the way we think, the way we feel, and ultimately the way that we act. We read the word, but in reality, the word reads us. And it shows us areas in our lives that we need to transform, either in our thinking or areas we need to surrender in obedience. But primarily, primarily, the word of God is about God. He has taken the guesswork of us trying to figure out who he is and what he's like. He's like, look, if you want to know who I am and what I'm like, look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Prioritize his words and follow him. For the group who's like, I do prioritize his word. In fact, I study his word. I don't knock that. In fact, I applaud that. But I do give caution. I'll never forget a story of a brother who told me he went to seminary and he went with his best friend and they had finally graduated. It was time to celebrate. But he saw his friend in the corner with his head in his hand and he was weeping. And he went to him and he asked him, like, what's going on? Why aren't you excited? And he said, man, for these past four years, this is the most time that I have spent 
in the word of God and yet the furthest I've ever felt away from him. That's a word. The word was not written purely for an academic purpose. The word was written so that we can have lives that are transformed. And this was part of the issue with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25 says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Amen. The goal is not to look like your favorite theologian. The goal is to look like Jesus. So question, in your study, do you observe the text, not just skim it, but look intently at the word to see what it says? What about an interpretation? Do you find out what the text means in context? And what percentage of you work to apply, work hard to apply the text? And I say work hard because it's not easy and it's not pretty because sometimes looking in the word reveals the ugliness of our sin. But it is so important. It's so necessary for life transformation. And this is why to follow him means prioritizing listening to Jesus's words, but not just listening, but doing what he says. The next thing we see, he prioritizes healing the greater need of spiritual brokenness. We see this in verse three to five. And it says, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. In verse three, Mark picks it back up with, and they came bringing to him, Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. These men obviously heard about Jesus. They heard that he was a healer and that he was back in town. Earlier, he had just cleansed the leper. And before that, he had a whole entire healing service there at Peter's house. So they're thinking like, wow, this is part two of the healing crusade. Mark 1.33 says the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So we see this man, he could not walk. Most likely he was a quadriplegic, not having the use of either his arms or his legs. So someone had the bright idea since it was so crowded and we can't get to Jesus inside, let's take him on the roof to get to Jesus from the outside. And two things we see here. We see the bold faith of these friends to address this man's physical needs. But we also see the bold statement of Jesus to address his spiritual needs. And now, can you imagine the whole scene? The crowd is glued in. They zeroed in on what Jesus is saying. And he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The scripture doesn't say what, but perhaps the topic is on forgiveness. And all of a sudden, some dust begins to kick up. And that's no big surprise, right? It's a thatched roof. It's made with mud. Sometimes these things happen. Then all of a sudden, debris begins to fall down. Dirt sticks. They all come down in the middle of a sermon. And then a man on a mat begins to appear being lowered through the roof. 
And I just picture Jesus, cool and collected, dusting off his Desert J editions, and he continues to preach right up to the point where it's time for an illustration. And rather than being ticked off, seeing their face, he uses this as a teachable moment. These men had the mindset that by any means necessary, they were going to get their friend in the presence of Jesus. Do we have that same type of faith? Do we have that same kind of faith regarding our neighbors, regarding friends, regarding family, that by any means necessary, I want them to be in the presence of Jesus? Desperate times call for creative action. And during the pandemic, how are you taking advantage of this? What are you doing with technology like Zoom, social media, or simple phone calls and FaceTime with family and friends just to catch up, just to check in, to pray, to encourage them to trust and to follow the Lord? Jesus saw their faith. This is the first mention of faith in the book of Mark. It is the conviction and active trust that Jesus is able to meet their needs. They didn't have all knowledge of who Jesus is, but they trusted him. Contrast that with these religious leaders who had more knowledge than most of the Messiah. But what they didn't have was trust, no love, no faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I like the King James Version. It says those that diligently seek after him. It's impossible to please God. Impossible for those who don't have faith. But those who do seek him, they are rewarded. These men came believing Jesus could meet their need by healing them physically. Healing their friend physically. And this is obvious since they tore a hole in someone else's roof and interrupted the entire gathering. This was risky, but Jesus being omniscient could see a desire for something deeper. And two things to note, two things to believe, and two things to ask. Two things to note. Jesus knows all things, and faith produces visible action. Two things to believe. Jesus knows all things, and faith produces visible action. And two things to ask yourself. Do you believe that Jesus knows all things? And how does your faith reflect that? He saw their faith. So as they wait for Jesus, they wait for what he has to say. He hits them with the one-two of love and mercy. He uses the term son as a term of endearment and says, your sins are forgiven. Your individual sins, plural, are at this very point in time forgiven. Once for all, his sins were remembered no more. Now, if you thought busting through the roof of Peter's house was a bold move, that was nothing compared to the statement that Jesus just said. Son, your sins are forgiven. He prioritizes forgiveness, the healing of spiritual brokenness. And in this, we learn that we have a great need, that it is undeserved to receive forgiveness. 
and it is only God who can provide it. As it is with the paralytic, so it is with us. We have a great need. We need forgiveness. We've all sinned. We've all fall short. There's none righteous, no one that is in right standing with God. In fact, we're not just sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Psalm 51 verse 4 says that we are born in sin. We're shaped in iniquity. This is our identity. And not only have we sinned against other people, but we have ultimately sinned against a holy and righteous God. And because he's holy and because he's righteous, he must deal with sin. And as a result, we have a death sentence. Our relationship with God is broken. And he has appointed man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. The very one who we send against, the very one that we reject, is the very one that we will be judged by. And today it's popular to say only God can judge me. Uh, but for those who have not had their sins forgiven, this is the absolutely worst predicament that you can find yourself in. Growing up, it was popular to think of uh, my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds. <laughs> but there's two major problems with that. Number one, God's standard of good is perfection, which none of us can achieve on our own. And our so-called good deeds in God's sight is like a filthy, dirty rag. So we're stuck. Where do we go? What do we do? There should be a sense of heaviness and despair concerning this beef that you have with God. But what if I told you that this could be squashed? There was a way to be forgiven. Well, there's good news today. Forgiveness is not a reward for doing good works. We've already established that, that our works regarding uh, trying to earn God's favor is both trifling and motive and indeed. You did the crime, you deserve the punishment. And the punishment is eternal separation from God in torment in hell. It is dark and hell is hot. The Bible describes a place where the flames are not extinguished and the worm dies not. Jesus talks a lot about this place often so that we would flee the wrath to come. We are in desperate need to have our sins forgiven. And one of the worst things that I've heard was the description of a man on death row. They just called him the condemned. Imagine day in and day out living with this reality. That really put things in perspective. It's one thing to be paralyzed and carried in on a mat. It's a whole other thing to be the walking dead. And if your sins aren't forgiven by the one who has authority to actually do that, then that's what you are. You are literally the walking dead. And that's the picture that scriptures paint. And the only hope is for a pardon. And that's what forgiveness family is all about. Forgiveness is all about a pardon. And at the cross... Jesus took the beat down that was meant for us, the punishment that we deserve. He lived the life that we couldn't live, holy and perfect, righteous, perfectly obeying God's law and doing every good work. The most important being dying the death that we should have died. He was crucified and before breathing his last, he said, it is finished. 
The sin debt was paid in full. And he took the condemnation meant for us so that we could now receive the pardon. And when he died, he was buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proclaiming victory over sin, proclaiming victory over death. And now he commands us while we have time to turn from sin and to put our trust in Jesus. The scripture says our sins will be cleansed and forgiven. God's love is on display and demonstrated in his forgiveness. Romans 5.18 says that God demonstrated his love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And for the Christian, love is really on display and demonstrated in our forgiveness too. Think about it. One of the signs of a changed life is forgiveness towards others. Our flesh does not lean in that direction. It requires God's grace, the ability to do what we cannot do in our own strength. But it also requires dying to self, crucifying the flesh daily of things like bitterness, anger, and revenge. And here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness doesn't mean the person is not guilty of actually sinning against you. I mean, that, that's the whole point of forgiveness is um, someone has sinned against you. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Forgiveness is given, but trust is earned. And that may take a while. But rather, forgiveness means letting go of the pain the incident caused you, continuing to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, part of that prayer was forgive us as we forgive others. Forgiveness is both a great gift we receive, but it's also a great gift to give away. How are you doing? How's your own heart regarding forgiveness? Are you bitter towards someone because of something he or she has done to you? Friends, family, co-workers, do you often get angry with people, husband, wife, children, either outwardly towards them or inwardly in your heart towards your brother, sister, church member? Do you speak about people behind their backs? Matthew 18, 15 to 20 and Matthew 5, 23 to 24 gives us the proper steps and the urgency to pursue reconciliation and forgiveness with one another. David Paulison in his book, Making All Things New, he says it like this. Jesus's mercies make all things new. His grace is a most versatile stain remover. He redeems both the wayward and the wounded. He goes to work on us. He works in us for as long as it takes. He does not give up. He will not give up on you. He will not give up on you. And we should not give up on one another. He's relentless in his pursuit to conform us more and more into the image of his son. And as he does that by prioritizing our greatest need, and that's forgiveness. We also see following Jesus prioritizes answering good questions over false statements and false accusations. We see that in verse 6 through 7. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, 
questioning in their hearts. Why did this man speak like that? He's blasphemed. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now in verse 6, we see the religious folk are back. They're back on the scene with skepticism. Like many skeptics who question Jesus' authority, they draw quick conclusions without having full evidence. Their agenda and pride clouds their thinking, and it also hardens their heart. And although these scribes make the wrong statement, they do ask the right questions. But there, verse 7, why does he speak like this? Uh, this is the trilemma that C.S. Lewis had to wrestle with when he sums it up in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however, strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis landed that Jesus is Lord. The scribes landed closer to liar and lunatic. They draw the conclusion that Jesus is the worst kind of liar. He lied on God. He was a blasphemer. And this is no small accusation. It brings reproach to God's name. It brings reproach to God's character. And it's punishable under Jewish law by stoning. Even his own family thought he was a lunatic. Mark 3, 20 to 21. When he went home, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, Jesus, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Man, Jesus had it rough. He was falsely accused by friend, family, and foe. And although they make the wrong statement, these scribes do ask the right questions. Following Jesus does not allow for asking. It does allow for asking the right questions. In fact, it demands it. Jesus tells us to count up the cost to being a disciple. We're not called to just simple blind faith. God can handle our questions and even our doubts. We should be honest with our doubts. Why? Because God knows already. He's omniscient, right? We saw that with the paralytic man's faith. He knew the heart of the scribes. We can fool people, but we cannot fool God. So in light of that, it frees us up. It frees us up to bring them and our concerns, our doubts to the Lord in prayer. We are a faith people, but there are times when we cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's a good, honest prayer to pray. 
And be reminded that the Lord has set you in a faith family. The worst thing you can do is to isolate. Don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. And let us be a friend or a church member that can receive another friend with love, with openness, and with truth. Especially during this time of the pandemic. And now Jesus perceiving in his spirit zeroes in on the scribes. And the big question that sets the stage for the big answer is who can forgive sin but God alone? And how does Jesus respond to the scribes' question? Not by backing up, but by doubling down. Following the question to its logical conclusion has major, major implications. The scribes were also called lawyers because they were experts in interpreting the Jewish law. But where they went wrong is when they went beyond interpretation and added man-made traditions that became even more important than the law itself. So perhaps these scribes recalled their training in the scriptures and they thought of Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, where God said, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or the prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied the new covenant that the Lord would initiate. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And as they wrestled, the scribes, with this, what they just heard about Jesus, Jesus asked them a question as the tension rises around his identity. But look how Jesus describes Jesus. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. But that you may know. This is the whole purpose, that the Son of God is also the Son of Man. And when Jesus spoke these words, his audience, and especially the scribes that were in attendance, knew exactly what he meant by those words. The title Son of God has uh, been used very commonly in the Jewish tradition. They referred to Adam as the Son of God, Israel as a nation as the Son of God, and even angels as the sons of God. And what Mark, the author of this book, is making clear is that Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is the eternal second person in the Trinity. But Jesus deliberately used the title Son of Man most because this speaks about his humanity and his deity. So when you look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, and you put Mark 14, 62 to 64 side by side, you see this messianic figure coming on the clouds, receiving worship by all peoples, by all nations, in all languages, for all times, revealing that he is not just a man, but he is the God-man who has authority to forgive sins, who deserves adoration, and who is the object of our praise. 
when I was at the gas station with my kids, they jumped out the car and went inside. The guy pulled up beside me and he said, man, are those your kids? All of them? I didn't know how to take that at first. But then he explained. He said, one of them over there has your height. This one has your mannerisms. This one walks like you. And oh, that little one, man, there's no doubt he's yours. But what they do imperfectly in reflecting their father, Jesus did perfectly in reflecting his. He revealed himself slowly so that through his compassion, through his love, through his healings, through his miracles, there was no doubt that he represents the Father. To see Jesus is to see God. He revealed himself slowly that we may not miss, but know this transcendent God intimately. John chapter 5, verse 37, it says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is in reference to Jesus. When John the Baptist had doubts as he sat in a jail cell, he wanted to know if this was the promised Messiah. Jesus sent word. Matthew 11, verse 2 to 5. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You will know me by the works that I perform. Verse 9, he says, which is easy to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk. Of course, it's easier to say than it is to do, because how can you prove it, right? But not so with Jesus. Growing up in the Bronx, people were quick to bump their gums. Many would talk, but would not have any action. But Jesus was thorough with his. Everything he said, he backed up. Jesus addresses the paralytic's greatest need as proof of his identity. And still heal the man physically. Our God is good. We serve a wonderful Savior. And brothers and sisters, our God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He sees man's heart. He perceives man's mind. He coordinates multiple things at once for his glory and for our good. And even in the midst of what may seem like chaos, roofs being dug up, mockers and skeptics in the crowd, and just like Jesus, we are likely to see these things as we engage with community and with neighbors but please, please know, he has a people in this city. He's still healing. He's still forgiving sins. He's answering doubts and calling people to himself. It's impossible for us to know what all God is up to, but we're called to trust him. To trust and to follow him as we prioritize who he is and how he has revealed himself in scripture. And lastly, we see the paralytic's response and the crowd's reaction in verse 12. And here's what we learn, that we have to prioritize glorifying God above all else. Verse 12 says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. 
Wow. This man who could not walk, this man was being carried on a mat, and now this very same man rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them. Again, this is a picture of Jesus' authority on display. We know that when God speaks, things happen. He is the uncaused cause. This would be reminiscent of Genesis when the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God spoke and things happened. God said, let there be light and there was light. And fam, the same power that spoke light into darkness and called this man to walk is the same power of God in the gospel that is able to save. This is the confidence that we have, not in ourselves, but in the power of God that is still available today. To the utmost, Jesus saves. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 to 6 regarding the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The parallel account of this is in Luke chapter 5, which says that the man took up his mat and glorified God all the way home. His needs were totally satisfied. John Piper coined this phrase that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And why wouldn't he be? This man received the gift of forgiveness and healing for both his body and his soul. I remember one Christmas as a child, I told my mother, I wish I could get you a, a Christmas gift. And when I get older, I'm going to get you all the Christmas gifts in the world. She just looked at me and she said, watching you enjoy your gift brings me joy. And I'm thinking to myself, no way, that couldn't be. I couldn't understand it, especially the year I got my He-Man and Castle Grayskull. I'm like, this, this can't be. But then when I read this scripture, I understood. There is unspeakable joy between the gift giver and the receiver that results in the praise of the receiver and the glory of God. And notice that Jesus didn't command him to keep quiet like he did with the previous people. The message that forgiveness is available for sinners and God's glory needed to spread. The demons couldn't do that. They couldn't testify to that. The man who was just healed couldn't testify uh, to that. But all who have experienced this forgiveness can and should spread the message far and wide. So question, in all that we do, but especially in the gray areas, do you determine your action based on, will this glorify God? And when I say glorify God, I'm talking about as a result of what I say and what I do, will God's name be honored or bring reproach? Will people praise God? Will God's name and fame spread because of you? Or will your name and your fame spread because of you? In dating, in courting, do you set boundaries based on asking the wrong question, like how far can we go? Or how do we best glorify God in our relationship? What about what job should I take? What area or type of place should I live? 
And for some, the question might be based on the season of life. Where might I most maximally glorify God? Full-time ministry? Maybe marketplace missionary? Either way, God's glory is always a good question to prioritize in light of every decision that we make. And not only do we see the paralytic's response, but we also see the crowd's reaction. We started with the crowd gathering, and now we end with the crowd glorifying God. This was a good day. And the rest of the verse says, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying we never saw anything like this. So far in this gospel account, we've seen Jesus's authority, authority to call his disciples, uh, authority in his teaching, authority in casting out demons, healing, and now the ability to forgive sins. And each time we see his authority on display, we've noticed a combination of things that take place. One is obedience and the other amazement. In this text, we have the same pattern. The exposure to the person and the work of Jesus Christ lands on different people in different ways. So the question is, where do you stand? Are you amazed to hear stories about this Jesus? Or are you ready to follow him in obedience? Are you ready to turn from sin and trust in this Jesus? Will you find forgiveness? It's no accident that friends invited you here today bringing you just as the paralytic friends brought him. And they did this because they love you. They love you enough to share the best news on earth that Christ Jesus was crucified, died, buried, and on the third day he rose again. This same Jesus rose from the grave, once again proving who he said that he is, the son of God who's able to cleanse you and able to forgive you of your sins and grant you everlasting trust him today. ARC, what is our effort on the block and in the community count for if people say, wow, look at them, rather than wow, look at our God. Remember the vision is first and foremost to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. They see our good works and they should glorify our Father in heaven. Following Jesus prioritizes glorifying God. And what does that look like? In a word, love. Loving God, loving each other, and loving our neighbor. And you all do a great job of this. And may the Lord be pleased to do more and more. And one last example before I close, just a couple of weeks ago, a young lady in Southeast uh, DC uh, was walking down a block and she passed out. And a few sisters who lived on that block from the church, they saw it and they went to help. The neighbors, they came running out and they was like, oh, oh that's so-and-so. She, she does that all the time. And there was no sense of urgency to get this woman out of the street. But these sisters, they came together, they split up. One contacted the EMS, the other stayed with her to ensure her safety. So imagine that love on display. It's a witness to that young lady it's a witness to the neighbors, and now it's an encouragement to the church. Pray that the Lord might use this for his glory and that she may know her greatest need and that it can be met by her sins being forgiven. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word goes out and it doesn't return void, but it accomplishes what it was sent forth to do. 
We pray, Lord, that you would save, that you would encourage, that you would use it for your glory, for our joy and salvation of many. We pray these things in Jesus' name.